Thanks, Adam Lee, for that introduction, and welcome, everybody, to the fourth installment of the Saving Country Music Roundup podcast. This is where you can find a lot of the articles on Saving Country Music from a given week or so, but in audio form for those who don't have the time to read everything on the website. Not everything is included here that's also on the website, uh, but there's also commentary that you won't find on the website. So hopefully this is a great way for people who want to interact with Saving Country Music to find the best way to do that. I'm your host, The Trigger Man. We're going to have some great stuff coming up, uh, features on a couple of really excellent songwriters, a review of the new Chris Stapleton album, as well as some other cool stuff. But I first wanted to start off by highlighting some numbers and say thank you to everyone who is listening. So I said at the beginning of starting these podcasts that I was kind of throwing stuff against the wall to see what sticks. I've been putting some audio and video stuff on YouTube as well. Without trying to do a whole lot of stuff, to promote this podcast at this point, uh, there's quite a few listeners. So I got the numbers from Apple Podcasts, and the podcast is already in the top 30 of music commentary in the United States. It's already in the top 100 as far as all musical podcasts in the United States, which kind of blows my mind. Um, It's top 10 in New Zealand for musical commentary. It's in the top 20 in both Canada and France for musical commentary. So so it's doing really well without a whole lot of effort. So as long as it does well like this, I will continue to make them. I'll put more energy and time into them. I'll try to do them more frequently. Uh, but I just want to say thanks to everybody who's listening and maybe sharing the podcast that it really helps out. But let's get into the meat and potatoes here. So there's been a lot of talk about Halls of Fame here lately with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame doing their inductions. And there's one guy that I feel like the Rock and Roll and the Country Music Hall of Fame are overlooking. When American music legend Jimmy Buffett passed away on September 1st, it became patently evident to all of us just how important this man and his music had been to popular music irrespective of genre for decades and across generations and to popular culture around the world. Though we only ever scored one official number one hit, this is a significantly misleading stat compared to the host of signature songs Buffett accrued over his career and the ultimate success and impact he had with them. Despite the lack of radio play beyond Margaritaville, or a proper genre to call his home, Jimmy Buffett scored nine certified platinum albums over his career, and an additional eight certified gold albums. This includes the whopping seven times platinum Songs You Know By Heart Greatest Hits compilation, 
which as the name implies, includes songs that many people in the United States know front to back. Perhaps the stat that's the best summation of Jimmy Buffett's career is that he was one of music's few billionaires. Sure, a lion's share of that billion was built off of his Margaritaville resorts, restaurants, and licensing deals. But you don't make that happen unless a song you wrote resonates so wide that it becomes an indelible part of American culture. This is what Jimmy Buffett did. Jimmy Buffett also inspired incredible loyalty from his fans that call themselves Parrotheads, because similar to the Grateful Dead's Deadheads, they'd crawl over broken glass to see him perform. Despite the widespread commercial success of the Jimmy Buffett empire later in his life, he also enjoyed phenomenal grassroots support, which is how he became so successful over time, despite radio and genres not really knowing what to do with him. This brings us to the discussion of why you never see or hear the name of Jimmy Buffett come up whenever talk veers towards who should be vying for the next class of inductees into the Hall of Fame, either the Country Hall of Fame or the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. We're talking about a billionaire musician who left behind a voluminous catalog of hit albums and an empire inspired by one of the most widely recognized songs in popular music history, and nobody even considers to mention his name for Hall of Fame consideration. This is all facilitated by the confounding question of what genre Jimmy Buffett belongs in. If you take an informed and objective assessment of his catalog from a sonic standpoint, Jimmy Buffett is clearly a country artist, more than he's anything else. With the emphasis on songwriting, how many of his albums were cut in Nashville with steel guitar and other country instrumentation, and how so many country artists covered his songs over the years, it makes sense that he would be considered country. The subgenre Buffett regularly cited to explain his sound was called golf and western, which is a take on country and western, just calling to mind his inspiration of the Gulf Coast, which lies in the southern United States. But since consistently throughout Jimmy Buffett's career, country music only sprinkled in plays for his singles, while adult contemporary and pop radio played them more consistently, people didn't think of Buffett as a country artist. Take his breakout single, Come Monday, which is clearly a country song. It stalled at number 58 on the country charts, but hit number 3 in adult contemporary and number 30 on the Billboard Hot 100. This started Jimmy Buffett down the path of being considered a soft rock star. However, have you seen Jimmy Buffett's name considered for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame either? Absolutely not, in part because voters and pundits don't think he has enough hits. Meanwhile, the Rock Hall is putting in country artists like Willie Nelson and Dolly Parton to try and garner publicity for themselves when Jimmy Buffett would be a perfectly fine fit. In truth, Jimmy Buffett was like his own genre. He defied genre like many of the greats do. Country may have never formally claimed Jimmy Buffett as their own, but they sure co-opted his sound. Kenny Chesney may have never had a career if it wasn't for the toes-in-the-sand influence Jimmy Buffett imparted to country. And just like Buffett, Kenny Chesney has now become country music's most consistent live draw over multiple decades. The Zac Brown Band and a bunch of others have also taken the influence of Jimmy Buffett and spun it into hit songs and significant careers. Alan Jackson had a triple platinum single with Buffett via 2003's It's Five O'Clock Somewhere that went number one. Zach Brown Band had another triple platinum number one single featuring Buffett in 2011 called Knee Deep. 
It took until later in his career, but country music finally embraced Jimmy Buffett in full form, both as an influence and a legend. Plenty of country music Hall of Famers never had significant chart success either. Chris Christopherson only had one number one hit and never cracked the top 40 again. Marty Stewart never had a single do better than number five. In truth, Jimmy Buffett shouldn't be considered for the Country Music Hall of Fame or the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He should be inducted in both. Due to a rule in the Country Hall of Fame bylaws stating that you can't be inducted the year after you die to shut down sympathy votes, Jimmy Buffett won't be considered for the Country Music Hall of Fame this upcoming cycle. But in subsequent years, Jimmy Buffett most certainly should be part of the Hall of Fame discussion, along with the laundry list of other artists that are scandalously on the outside looking into the honor. And instead of inducting country artists already in the Country Hall of Fame like Willie Nelson and Dolly Parton, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame could also step up to the plate, since that's a more likely possibility for Buffett due to their expanded field. Jimmy Buffett mattered to music well beyond the Margaritaville franchise, and his legacy deserves to be enshrined in the halls of American music reserved for the most important and influential artists of our time. That was what Jimmy Buffett was. He was a Hall of Famer. Whenever someone wants to define what country music is, or define the most pure and traditional version of the art form, or draw the greatest contrast or comparison between the pop versions of the genre and what country music is supposed to be in its most buttoned-up form, there is one proper answer or example to give, and one proper answer only. His name is Mark Chestnut. Sure, there are plenty of other traditional country performers out there, both in country music's past and present. But Mark Chestnut is the man that not only draws a hard line when it comes to keeping the true country music flame alive, he's also the guy who's done it with appeal, style, originality, and class for going on 40 years now. If you need a textbook definition or encyclopedia entry of what country music is, if aliens came down and asked for a quick summation of what the music was all about, you'd hand them a Mark Chestnut album. But instead of being relegated to the fringes of the genre from this fiercely loyal adherence to the true country sound, Mark Chestnut fielded eight number one songs and 20 top tens in his heyday on the way to putting together a towering catalog that is a terribly important part of country music. All of this is true, despite Chestnut's decision to cover Aerosmith's song, I Don't Want to Miss a Thing, in 1998, something he's spoken about in the past as a regret, even though, hey, it ain't a bad version of a good song. Chestnut also pulled off many eight number ones without some of his most signature and lasting songs rising to the top. Too Cold at Home only went to number three. Bubba Shot the Jukebox stalled at number four. And Blame It on Texas only made it to number five. They were too country for the top of the charts. Mark Chestnut took the torch from George Jones, who was also from the Beaumont area of Texas, and made sure to keep it country during country music's most commercial era in the Garth Brooks 90s. In fact, Chestnut came directly endorsed from George Jones, who was country music's ultimate gatekeeper later in his life. Chestnut got invited to perform on the special guest version of George's song, I Don't Need Your Rockin' Chair. 
But before any of this, Mark Chestnut spent a decade paying dues, which is the way it's supposed to be. Dropping out of high school when he was a junior so he could perform in the clubs and honky-tonks of East Texas, Mark and his dad would travel back and forth to Nashville to record for independent and regional labels. It never really went anywhere until famous producer Tony Brown heard one of Mark's albums, recommended him to producer Mark Wright, and Chestnut was signed to MCA Records in 1990. That same year, Mark Chestnut's dad died of a heart attack. He never got to see the overwhelming success of his son. Mark Chestnut's debut album, Too Cold at Home, was a big one. It launched five top ten singles alone, including the number one song, Brother Jukebox. It also included the other version of the song, Friends in Low Places, which of course Garth Brooks would send into the stratosphere after ball-hogging the single. Garth heard it while he was still working as a demo singer. A few different twists of fate, and it could have been Mark Chestnut who made it big with the song. His version came out about a month after Garth's. Some will forward George Strait as the textbook example of country, but the starch in Chestnut's genes may even be more rigid than Strait's. Though similar to George Strait, Mark Chestnut rarely wrote any of his own songs. But that didn't matter. He could pick them with the best and sing them perhaps better than anyone in his era or the present one. Why are we speaking so long and fondly about old Mark Chestnut on a random Monday? It's because over the last few days, word has come down that Mark Chestnut has been in the hospital for undisclosed reasons, getting tests and being overlooked with undetermined results. It comes after he's been forced to cancel shows over the last few years due to back issues and other health concerns. Turning 60 in September, we sure hope Mr. Chestnut still has plenty of life to live and plenty of shows to play. But too often we fail to share our appreciation or bestow adulation to an individual until it's too late. People love to talk about how 90s country is all the rage at the moment, and it is. Garth Brooks, Alan Jackson, and Brooks and Dunn are always given top billing for defining the era. But Mark Chestnut rarely gets mentioned in this shorthand notion of what 90s country was when he was the guy that kept it country while killing it on the charts as well. So here's to old Mark Chestnut, who never sold out, never compromised, kept a country for 40 years going strong, and remains the textbook definition of country for anyone who wants to go searching for it. Hey folks, it's Trigger back here with you live, and there is an update on the Mark Chestnut situation. He posted to Facebook a few days after I wrote that article. Let me just read it off to you here. He says, quote, to my family, friends, and the country music community, many of you who know me well know that I have been struggling with a battle that I've fought to overcome for many years on my own. Now, after some extreme health issues I've recently experienced, the time has come. The fight is over. I've made the decision to take the time to get healthy. I'll be coming off the road for the next couple of months to concentrate on getting well, to take care of me, my family, and so that I can get back out on the road to give back to all of you who have shown me unconditional support, care, and love throughout my entire career. 
I truly appreciate your heartfelt understanding in my commitment and your sensitivity to my decision and the privacy to allow me this time. I'll see you when I return to the road in February. Be good to one another. Stay well. God bless. So we still don't really know what's going on with Mark Chestnut. He did have back issues uh, a while back, and some people have brought up that, you know, they've seen him over the years, and maybe he had a little too much to drink uh, when he was on stage. So we really don't know, and we'll respect his privacy, but uh, hopefully he gets uh, the help, whatever help he needs, and uh, he'll get back out on the road in 2024. So I have some commentary coming up on the CMA Awards and Marin Morris and the Grammy Awards, as well as a review for the new Chris Stapleton album. But first, I'd like to get into a couple of Texas country music songwriters who don't always get their due, but are carrying forward that fine Texas tradition of songwriting. So let's get into it. It's only those uninitiated in the new crop of country music songwriters who complain that all the greats are gone and the magic of the music is never to return to its heyday in the 70s when guys like Rodney Crowell and Towns Van Zant were sitting around Guy Clark's kitchen table cranking out songs that would define the greatest contributions of a generation. Guy and Towns may no longer be with us, but Rodney still is, and he personally cites Vincent Neal Emerson as one of the newer songwriters filling those shoes in the contemporary era. A native Texan with Choctaw Apache heritage who draws inspiration from the land and the songwriters who came before him, Vincent Neal Emerson has many feeling that magic that only the best of music can impart. The Golden Crystal Kingdom might sound like a fantastical-sounding title, and some of the rhetoric preceding this album might be about Emerson defying genre with his third release. But don't worry, you get everything you want from a Vincent Neil Emerson album here, including quality songs and a country sound, even if it lunges into the country rock realm and stretches, just like all those heartworn country songwriters of the 70s did too. The opening song, Time of the Rambler, is a dour reflection on how the era when a young soul could wander aimlessly throughout the United States searching for themselves and a sense of fulfillment from the freedom life in parts is in the past. It's hard to find that big rock candy mountain when it's impossible to get lost anymore. This nostalgic, bygone yearning for times and places better than the current one comes up often on the album. The title track isn't about a Disney castle. It's ultimately about commemorating those wooden dance floors in old country stores in Texas, where despite the humble nature of the setting, so much magic happens. It's not just the songs, but the sound of the Golden Crystal Kingdom that helps set your mind some 50 years in the past. Producer Shooter Jennings allows Emerson's songs and singing to be the centerpiece on certain tracks like the acoustic Clover on the Hillside or Emerson's cover of Charlie Crockett's Time of the Cottonwood Trees. Most of this album is assuredly country, with songs like Time of the Rambler and On the Banks of the Old Guadalupe and their steel guitar accompaniment defining the sound. But in other instances, some fuzzy 70s guitar comes in very hot. This injects a bit of energy in what's otherwise a well-mannered singer-songwriter album. The bluesy Hang Your Head Down Low will get your pulse rate up for sure, and the disturbed and unsettled moments found in the lyricism of Man from Uvalde are met with similar moody textures in the sound. Stuff may get a little too wild on Emerson's rendition of Buffy St. Marie's classic song, Codeine. 
Some sort of reverse tape playback effect is employed on the guitar in a way that potentially graduates it from bold and distinctive to downright distracting. The knock on Shooter Jennings' production early on was his propensity to inject wanky guitar parts where they weren't warranted. He's since chilled out significantly, but this might be an instance where he's reverted back. These more rock-oriented moments are also what separate Vincent Neal Emerson from the singer-songwriter gaggle, and allows his live show to be something more unique as well. Though defying genre doesn't feel like the right description, Emerson and Shooter do a really excellent job catering the music of the Golden Crystal Kingdom to the themes of each song, delivering a tasty and engaging experience cover to cover. This is good, because some of the middle songs on the record strain to convey what they're really trying to express. Nobody will ever truly fill the shoes of the past singer-songwriter greats like Guy Clark and Towns Van Zandt. But what this generation can do is build from their foundation and continue that legacy into the future. This is what Vincent Neil Emerson is doing, and to favorable results on his third album. 8 out of 10 There are songwriters, and then there is that most exclusive pantheon of songwriters who wield the pen so mightily, it goes beyond the simple casting of characters and landscapes in the mind's eye of the listener, and graduates to imparting new perspectives on life otherwise inaccessible, and opening up entirely new avenues of thought in the audience. We're talking about James McMurtry. We're talking about Chris Knight. We're talking about Laurie McKenna. And though he may not enjoy the same name recognition as these aforementioned individuals, down in Austin, attentive listeners and peers of Terry Klein consider him part of that elite company. Give yourself 40 minutes in the audience of his new album, Leave the Light On, and you'll count yourself among that company as well. Wherever his muse takes him, and whatever subject he chooses to broach, Terry Klein can tackle it, and with authority. In one moment, he's writing a loving tribute to newlyweds on how to keep the matrimony pleasant for many years to come. Then in the next moment, he's singing from the perspective of a homicidal for-hire killer and convincing you this profession is perfectly acceptable. Next, he's taking something as mundane as scrounging up a $1.60 to buy a pack of smokes and making it sound like a hero's journey. This is Terry Klein at work, and he's one of those songwriters where the words and stories trump everything else, including whether the audience who finds favor with this work is far and wide or few and far between. The song is what dictates where he goes, and few songs will take you farther than the ones of Terry Klein. The ten songs of Leave the Light On are like ten little universes that you're eager to unearth and unravel hanging on every word, and re-racking them to catch what you might have missed the first time. But this experience would not be as pleasant if the musical accompaniment wasn't as complimentary as it is. Produced by another mastermind and Tom Jutz, the songwriting is always paramount, but the country style and how these songs are rendered is appreciated by the audience too. The shuffling groove of This Too Shall Pass sets your mood right, even if you don't catch the song's lesson on luck. The fiddle of Sky Blue LeBaron gives a warm feeling as well, and the steel guitar is the perfect texture to sell you on the destitute story of starting at zero. Other names in Terry Klein's orbit are Walt Wilkins, who produced his first two albums, along with Mary Gaucher and Rodney Crowell, who've both given Klein high praise. 
He lives a rather quiet existence, though, seeking out listening rooms like the Bluebird Cafe in Nashville or the Saxon Pub in Austin, where the crowd comes to listen and will rebuff anyone for talking over the music. In the void of boisterous shows, big-budget publicity campaigns, or a massive social media presence, it's up to the audience to support and share what songwriters like Terry Klein do. It's a symbiotic relationship between singer and patron. And on Leave the Light On, Terry Klein gives patrons a great selection of songs that is better than most. 8.4 out of 10. When the Circle Network launched on January 1, 2020, as a joint venture between Gray Television and the Grand Old Opry's parent company, Ryman Hospitality, everyone had big hopes that it would see the grand return of true country music to television. Along with 16 original shows, the network's Opry Live presentation each week spelled the re-emergence of the Grand Old Opry on the small screen, even if in a limited capacity. Some of the network's programming will continue on in other locations in the digital world, but in a third-quarter financial report released on November 6th, Ryman Hospitality and Gray Television let it be known that the linear Circle TV network, along with their partnership, will wind down on December 31, 2023. The network is currently available in over 100 markets. The report says, quote, In September 2023, we determined to pivot from television network ownership in favor of a distribution approach. Therefore, we and our joint venture partner agreed to wind down the Circle Joint Venture, with operations expected to cease December 31, 2023. As a result, we incurred a loss related to Circle of approximately $10.6 million in the three and nine months ending September 30, 2023. Unquote. A spokesman for Ryman Hospitality went on to say, quote, The Circle brand isn't going away. The linear TV network will wind down at the end of the year, along with the joint venture. Programming like Opry Live and Coffee Country and Cody will continue to be produced and made available digitally on fast, streaming, and other digital distribution platforms. We also expect Opry Live to air on network television, just not on a dedicated Circle network. Opry Live will also air on Sky Arts in the UK. Unquote. The Circle Network had a lot of promise at the beginning as a place for new country music programming and archive footage of previous Opry performances. It benefited from the pandemic when the Grand Old Opry was one of the few productions that was allowed to continue, even though no crowds were in attendance. The Circle remained unbroken, and the Opry broadcast through the Circle Network every Saturday night helped revitalize the Opry as an institution. But Circle seemed to lose its way post-pandemic. Some of the original shows never saw second seasons. Most of the day was filled with network TV reruns. The long-planned return of Hee Haw never happened, and Circle did little to tap the vast archives of Opry material for rebroadcast. The writing was on the wall for the Circle Network after NBC Universal purchased a 30% stake in Ryman Hospitality in April of 2022. The partnership recently resulted in the People's Country Choice Awards. Despite the new partnership, though, we have yet to see actual Grand Old Opry presentations make it on to NBC. Whether that will transpire in the future remains to be seen. Exactly what will happen to the Circle app where many people stream shows also remains a question.
Opry Live and Coffee Country and Cody will be available on Fast. And Ryman Hospitality insists the Circle Network will still exist, just not in TV form. But it feels like the big opportunity to give a home to the Grand Old Opry on the television once again is over. Just how significant the effort will be to keep it alive in the digital world remains to be seen. Hey, it's Trigger back with you live here, and I just wanted to broach real quick the matter of the CMA Awards. It's been a little bit since, but uh, the big narrative coming out of it was Lainey Wilson winning for CMA Entertainer of the Year. This is the biggest award given out in country music every year. And though I feel bad that Miranda Lambert and Carrie Underwood and other women of country music have never won it, it feels like a victory for Lainey Wilson to win this, uh, not just for women in country music, but for country music in country music. Because Lainey Wilson, she's not a super traditionalist or anything, but she's definitely more country music than what we've been hearing from the mainstream in the last few years. And to have a woman win the award for the first time in 12 years, and she's only the second woman to win this uh, in the last 20 years. This is a big moment. And uh, and sure, the other artists in the field were bigger and more popular, uh, Morgan Wallen, Luke Combs, Chris Stapleton, and Miranda Lambert. But when you have a strong field like that, you can have all the other nominees sort of cannibalize themselves, and then the plurality of votes go to a dark horse. And that's what we have with Lainey Wilson. My other theory of how this happened is right when CMA voters went to vote for this, the whole Marin Morris leaving country music thing had just blown up. And I think a lot of people saw this as sort of an answer to what Marin Morris was saying in the press about how, you know, country music can't support women and this, that and the other. And so the CMA voters stood up and said, no, actually, we can support a woman. And, um, you know, I also said that this is not a win for the present. It's more kind of a win for the future. I think the CMA and I think country music, mainstream country music, they see Lainey Wilson as the future, and they're codifying that with this win. Again, were the other nominees more qualified? Well, of course they were. But mainstream country is clearly becoming more country as we speak, and I think Lainey Wilson and her success is a big symbol of that. Um, And speaking of Maren Morris, so just recently she came out, and now she's on some sort of... uh, re-education campaign, I don't know what else to call it, where she's saying she never actually did leave country music, that it was all just clickbait headlines and this, that, and the other. And and look, it's not that the press can't get it wrong at times or, or put together sensationalized headlines. That actually happens all the time. But in this case, she released two songs and an EP called The Bridge, which basically spell it all out right there. I think she's having some seller's remorse. Uh, she's finding out very quickly that when you're a country star going into pop, all of a sudden you become a very small fish in a very big sea. It's very few people who can make that jump. Taylor Swift did it, but Taylor Swift also did it without burning the bridge to country music behind her. So I think Maren Morris is understanding that if she wants her career to succeed, she can't just completely cut loose all of her country fans that followed along with her for years. So anyway, I wrote about all that stuff on Saving Country Music, so if you want to delve a little bit deeper into it, you can certainly do that. I know it frustrates some of uh, the independent listeners when I talk about mainstream stuff, but I think this stuff matters. You know, I go back and forth about, well, how important are awards? How important are the CMAs? And, you know, sometimes they're not very important at all, but other times they're super important. 
I mean, I think of uh, Patty Loveless last year. She performed You'll Never Leave Harland Alive on the CMAs. And I swear it was the momentum from that incredible performance that ended up putting her in the Country Music Hall of Fame, which is uh, actually voted on by the CMAs. And she performed it with Chris Stapleton. And a lot of people remember back in 2015 when Chris Stapleton had his big breakout moment with Justin Timberlake. And then you have the Grammy Awards, which just a few days after the CMAs had wrapped up, announced the nominees for what will be the 2024 awards. And, you know, the Grammys are completely different from the CMAs because it's a nonprofit organization. And with the American Roots categories that they cover, you see a lot of the artists that a lot of independent and grassroots fans love getting recognition from them. Uh, You know, you have folk categories and bluegrass categories and Americana categories, along with the country categories that are more likely to cover independent artists than the CMAs or ACMs or any mainstream country awards. Um, Tyler Childers got five nominations, five nominations. That's pretty incredible. Um, Jason Isbell got, I think, three nominations. So, you know, there's a lot of interesting stuff to see there. And for so many artists, a Grammy nomination, just a nomination, whether they win or not, can be a career defining or a career making moment. Um, You know, I think of like Wood and Wire, which is this uh, little bluegrass band that's based here in Austin. They got a Grammy nomination a few years ago. That's the kind of thing that you put on a resume. It then helps artists get gigs. It helps them get on festivals. It helps them land uh, management or booking or all kinds of opportunities. So I think it is important, uh, even more so than the CMA, to interact with the Grammy Awards. They often get it wrong, too. But I think the only way that you're going to help make sure that they get it right or get it closer to right is by interacting with it, letting your opinion be known. At least that's what I think. And so that's why I pay attention to these things, even though I know it drives some people crazy. I mean, art is not a competition. But ultimately, all these awards are just another curation point. It's another way to get artists' attention, worthy music attention. And so that's why it's, in my opinion, it's worth paying attention to. But anyway... Last but not least here, Chris Stapleton recently released a new album called Higher, so let's get into the album review for that. Chris Stapleton will be a country music hall of famer someday, and with the release of his latest album Higher, he ensures that he will help define at least a decade of the country music genre, even if his music isn't especially country. As one of the most ubiquitous, well-recognized, and universally beloved performers and songwriters of our time, Stapleton's legacy is secured and cemented. It's been said by others, and Saving Country Music would concur, that Hire by Chris Stapleton is everything you expect from a Stapleton release. He doesn't stray from the formula, because there is very little reason to. At 45 years of age and Stapleton selling out arenas seven minutes after tickets go on sale, the incentives to stray from the script are slim to none. Though some love to say an album like this defies genre, what it doesn't defy is the sound that Chris Stapleton has established for himself, which is a soulful voice and a southern approach that sees his songs act as launching pads for soaring performances, while allowing ample opportunities for Stapleton to flex his guitar skills. 
Just like his previous four solo albums, Stapleton records at RCA's Studio A with his backing band of J.T. Cure on bass, Derek Mixon on drums, and wife Morgan on background vocals as well as electronic keys and tambourine. Lee Pardini also adds some important piano and organ in the mix, and Paul Franklin's pedal steel makes some welcomed appearances. Though it's all produced by Dave Cobb once again, this time both Chris and Morgan are cited as co-producers. One difference between Hire and the previous four albums is Stapleton is relying more on truly new material this time. The From A Room volumes both felt like Stapleton unloading previously written songs from his catalog to keep the momentum of his blockbuster debut, Traveler, going. 2020 Starting Over had some of that too, with a couple of recognizable covers as well. Hire makes a concerted effort towards more fresh stuff, with the studio team of Stapleton, Mixon, Cure, and Cobb being given song credits on three separate tracks. Miranda Lambert co-wrote the opening song, What Am I Gonna Do?, and longtime Stapleton co-writer Kendall Marvel gets a co-write with Tim James on Loving You On My Mind. The song White Horse, co-written with Dan Wilson, preceded the album, and might be the greatest specimen of Chris Stapleton music ever released. Though naysayers will still claim it's pedestrian like all Stapleton songs, an open heart will feel this track raise the pulse and lift the spirit, with an elevated amount of composition and layering making it stand out from the rest of Stapleton's catalog, driven home by a southern rock attitude. Aside from the song South Dakota, that carries a bit of a bluesy and outlaw aspect to it, Higher in many respects is an album of love songs and devotion, with It Takes a Woman, The Fire, Think I'm in Love With You, Loving You On My Mind, White Horse, and Higher creating the heart of the album's message. The harmonies of Chris and Morgan tie these songs to their real-world inspirations, with now five children in the household, there's a reason some of these songs take on a baby-making vibe. The title track calls to mind Luther Vandross, only clothed in a more country aspect. But these middle songs are also where the album drags a bit. Sometimes without the traditional verse-chorus setup, or a bridge to break up what becomes a rather monotonous listening experience, these songs just sort of drone along on revolving chords in a similar theme, making them easy to background in your attention span as opposed to compelling a more active involvement from the audience. Then again, this is what some people want from their music, including a lot of Stapleton fans. This is definitely more of a groove album than a songwriter one. But then the final third of the album shakes it up and becomes more singer-songwriter based and more country. Steel guitar player Paul Franklin appears on tracks 11 to 13, and this is where more devout country listeners should point their ears. The final song, Mountains of My Mind, is Stapleton's only solo-written song, and shows a deeper and more unresolved moment than we're used to hearing from him. Even with these textures, though, higher strains to win your undivided attention is a cohesive listen even if the album feels cohesive to itself and specific songs individually feel extraordinary. It's also the same consistency that has ensconced Chris Stapleton as country music's most reliable superstar, and unlike some of his counterparts in the mainstream, deservedly so. It's not exactly country, but it's not really more at home in any other genre either. It may not be the music that most defines your life, but it's music you don't mind moving in and out of it. 
It's Chris Stapleton, which means always on brand, always enjoyable, even if rarely exceptional. This is what you can expect from Hire. 7.6 out of 10. Thanks, everybody, for listening. I've been your host, Trigger, from SavingCountryMusic.com. Like I said earlier in the show, it's great that so many people are listening, which means I can devote more time and more energy to doing this and making different podcasts as well that maybe delve a little bit deeper into the subjects. Um, And as always, please stop by SavingCountryMusic.com whenever you can. That's the best place to get reviews and news and commentary on country music. Um, There's not going to be any ads on this podcast, at least not at the beginning, Uh, but I did set up a little place where you can throw a buck or two in the hat if, if you like what you here and you want to support the show. And if not, that's cool too. All I've ever asked from anyone is their eyes and their ears. So take it easy till next time.